When you sit down with a financial advisor, they're going to show you your pie chart of diversification. And it always kind of makes me laugh a little bit because if you look at that pie chart of diversification, it ends up being all long GDP assets, right? You have stocks, bonds, private equity, real estate, venture capital. All of these things are long GDP. And what I mean by that is when we're awash with liquidity, when credit conditions are loose, all these things are going to do exceedingly well in a risk-on environment. And when we're in that risk-on long GDP times, you're looking at diversification in your portfolio. The problem is all of those things are implicitly short volatility, meaning they are harmed by volatility in the markets. And so when we have any sort of sell-off or an endogenous liquidity event, like March 2020, we see that the correlations of that uncorrelated pie chart go to one. And, and they all sell off at the same time, which really shows what the diversification is there or lack of diversification. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today I'm joined by Jason Buck, who is a former soccer player turned entrepreneur, trader, and volatility expert, and who is a co-founder of the Mutiny Funds. And many of you will know Jason, of course, from his many podcasts, YouTube videos, and Real Vision interviews. So first off, Jason, thanks so much for joining me on TTU. I'm excited about our conversation today. How are you doing? How are things where you are? I uh, couldn't be better. And I'm really excited today because I've actually been listening to you for years. So it's a true pleasure to be on. I, I think even going back to 2015, I think you had my buddy Bastian Balesta on. I was just reminiscing on all the times I've listened to you in my headset. So it's definitely a true honor and pleasure to be sitting here talking to you today. Absolutely great to have you here. Now, as mentioned earlier, many of my listeners will be familiar with you from the great work that you do and the interviews that you've conducted. But for those of you who are meeting you for the first time, why don't we give them a little bit of a backstory to set the scene and uh, the context for our conversation today. How did it all end up in this space for you? Sure. So you alluded to it previously. I'm primarily an entrepreneur. And going into the GFC in 2007, 2008, I was a commercial real estate developer. I also owned some restaurants and an internet service provider and other things. But the acute pain that I felt from the great financial crisis, when liquidity dries up across the board on a macro sense, it doesn't matter how good you are as an entrepreneur. If macro liquidity dries up, everybody's screwed. And so that pain was so acute for me for losing money for myself, family, friends, etc. I figured there had to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. And everybody thought that was impossible. But you know, I've been trading options going on about two decades now. I started trading VIX in about 2011, 2012. But I, I had this idea that there had to be a way to maybe hedge global macro entrepreneurial risk. And that would be a, a superpower for entrepreneurs to have if they could just go idiosyncratically long their personal investments and their personal ideas and then hedge out some of that macro risk. That was my focus for like the last decade. So it really comes from this idea of entrepreneurial. 
I'm an entrepreneur first. My partner, Taylor Pearson, is an entrepreneur first. So we come from outside the industry. So I think we look at investments in a very different sense than most people. We really care about drawdowns most, what you can eat, eat what you kill. We worry things about things like MAR ratio, like your long-term return divided by your max drawdown. I know these things are, I'm speaking to a, a cohort here when we talk about those kinds of things because the CTA world views of the world very similar to the way we do. But that's really what it comes from is this, I, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. And the way I look at the investment space is from an entrepreneurial lens. Yeah. And looking at it from that side, and, and that's obviously different from many of the people that we speak to, has the world changed when you look at it from that perspective? Now, the risks that you're trying to hedge yourself against, have, have they changed to some extent? I think a little bit. So the way, one of the ways I look at it is over the last two decades, we've had the real rise in derivatives. And so, you know, as we talk about now, people going out the risk curve and people selling volatility, you've had a rise in the derivative space, I would say, since at least 2000. And so that started to really concern me is, is, is these derivatives, are they the tail that's wagging the dog? And so part of that is I go back to the Harry Brown's permanent portfolio from the 1970s. And that's what I think about asset class diversification. And Harry Brown had the four quadrant model of, of stocks, bonds, cash, and gold. I really started to wonder if cash provided that ballast against a, a stock market sell-off, or is there too many derivatives in this space where you could have these really liquidity cascades, to steal a, a phrase from my buddy Corey Hofstein, where the derivative space leads to more violent sell-offs, and you need almost derivatives on the other side to provide that ballast that cash can't really provide for you. So that's one way I look at from the entrepreneurial sense is just watching the growth of the derivatives market and also the growth of volatility and the VIX instruments. That's what we've really seen in the last decade or two that I believe has been a change to the market. And then hearkening back to my idea of I was a commercial real estate developer. What scares me now about real estate is historically, especially individual real estate was, it was your home, it was your cave, right? And it wasn't marked to market. And so you could, you didn't have to worry too much about it. But now we've had this over-financialization of our world, which is part of that derivative process, that now people are talking about sell, selling fractional pieces of their home. That concerns me is then we have to throw out the historical rule book of what home prices look like if now we've financialized and created derivatives and, and fractionalized even our home ownership. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point and probably a, a topic for a whole other discussion. So let's dive into what we're going to talk about today. Now, many investors today have learned about the importance of diversification. And if they look at their portfolio, especially if it's put together by a bank or a financial advisor, they will see all these many lines uh, of uh, sort of line items representing different kinds of uh, investments. And of course, the natural conclusion would be, look at all that great diversification that I have. But some would argue that there's really only one type of investment, namely volatility. So when you look closer, you're either going to be long volatility, you're going to be short volatility. So why don't we start there, perhaps, and maybe you can explain the importance of why seemingly diversified portfolios may actually be quite risky. Yeah, when you sit down with a financial advisor, they're going to show you your pie chart of diversification. And it always kind of makes me laugh a little bit because if you look at that pie chart of diversification, it ends up being all long GDP assets, right? You have stocks, bonds, private equity, real estate, venture capital. All of these things are long GDP. And what I mean by that is when we're awash with liquidity, when credit conditions are loose, all these things are going to do exceedingly well in a risk-on environment. And when we're in that risk-on long GDP times, you're looking at diversification in your portfolio. 
The problem is all of those things are implicitly short volatility, meaning they are harmed by volatility in the markets. And so when we have any sort of sell-off or an endogenous liquidity event, like March 2020, we see that the correlations of that uncorrelated pie chart go to one. And, and they all sell off at the same time, which really shows what the diversification is there or lack of diversification. So when we look at the world, we think about those long GDP assets are implicitly short volatility. We need to really pair those with long volatility assets. So when those sell-offs happen, when correlations go to one on our other asset classes, we have something that's there that can balance the portfolio, provide a convex return, hopefully, and then rebalance that back with those short volatility assets. So at the end of the day, we look at the world as both short volatility and long volatility, and that's the two primary buckets that most asset classes fall into. Yeah. And and so let's focus then on the, the long volatility side, because as, as you mentioned, a lot of uh, the short volatility assets, people are familiar with them, even though they may not know there are short volatility. But what does a, sh a long volatility asset look like? You've already alluded to why you should have them, but what do they look like? Sure. A couple of examples of long volatility assets, and I'll dive into them as well, is you have an asset class just called long volatility, which is basically an ab absolute return opportunistic way to trade volatility. You have your classical tail risk, which is like your insurance-like put strategies. You could, you could, One could argue that gold or Bitcoin uh, provide maybe a little bit of ballast to long volatility. And then close to your heart, you have obviously CTA trend, which is a great long volatility strategy as well. To almost steal a phrase from your writing cohort, Catherine Kaminsky, you have strategies that are either convergent or divergent. And most of those implicit short volatility strategies are convergent strategies or mean reverting strategies. And the long volatility strategies are going to be divergent strategies, right? They're going to break out and have some convexity to them that really provides that ballast. So I referenced long volatility. So what the heck is long volatility? The idea is it's just a different way of, of trading the volatility space. The classical way is tail risk, right? You just buy puts against, let's say, the S&P 500 in a negative 20% drop, and it's a fairly passive strategy. It, it requires some active management to do it well and to monetize it well, but otherwise, just buying tail risk puts is a fairly passive strategy, and it's very similar to home insurance, car insurance, life insurance, those sorts of insurance-like products. Now we've seen this space, and this is part of one of the advancements of long volatility is where we have managers that are looking to opportunistically trade the volatility space. So they'll be buying puts, but they also may be buying calls as well. So they're trading both the left and the right tails, and they're shooting for absolute returns over a business cycle. So what they would hope to do is carry flat to slightly positive over a business cycle while still providing those convex returns in a sell-off. So this is where the real advancement we've seen in, in the volatility space is on this long volatility way of trading um, that's much more opportunistic trading in and out of the markets and trying to maybe time those sell-offs. Yeah, and, and those three types of long volatility strategies, as you said, long volatility in itself, tail risk, and then CTA slash trend following, I, I guess that it's hard to know for investors which one they should have. But could you maybe describe, I know, of course, that you think you should have all of them, but can you maybe describe in what environment would they have their kind of strong side in terms, in terms of diversification across long volatility strategies? Why do you need all of them? Sure. It's great. As you know, I'm, I'm D all the above. But I think CTA trend, for example, it always has a marketing problem, right? What do you call it? And at one point, as you were part of calling it crisis alpha, right? Which it provided in 2008. And that's when you have a sort of long protracted drawdown or recession like you have in 2008, your CTA trend is going to do exceedingly well. 
it's a great strategy. But if you are in an uptrend and you have a sharp, violent, endogenous liquidity event and a sell-off like we saw in March 2020, your CTA trend can be caught on the wrong side. Not only that, they can get whipsawed as they get try to get in on that trend and then it reverses in a violent V-shaped recovery. So it's not going to do as well in those sharp sell-offs that we saw in March 2020, where your things like long volatility and tail risk are going to do well there. Tail risk, you need to hit your attachment point. So let's just say you are buying negative 20% out of the money puts that are going to cover one for one in that sell-off, well, you need the, you need that sell-off to exceed that 20% threshold before you're going to make money there. So in any sort of sell-off that's 10 or 15%, you're not going to monetize those puts, so you're not going to do well in those environments. Long volatility can be a little bit more opportunistic in trading the, the left and the right tail, so it, it can maybe try to take advantage of smaller sell-offs, trying to monetize them a little bit differently. It can also take advantage of melt-up scenarios, like in a 99-type scenario when we have a melt-up in stocks. If you're buying the right tails of those calls on the S&P 500, for example, you can monetize the, that melt-up in a way that it's hard to do with the linear instruments that's much more of a, a, a timing issue. So this is why there's a lot of different path dependencies to sell-offs or different market or macroeconomic environments. And so we view that you should try to take advantage of as many of those as possible through true diversification of your return drivers. Yeah. Now, of course, people who listen to this podcast will um, have heard a lot about trend following and CTAs and the history and all of that good stuff. But the, in terms of the other types of, of long volatility strategy, so long volatility outright and, and tail risk, how long would you say that they've actually been around as strategy? How big is the universe? Because you probably know all the players in, in, in that area. So I'm curious to know how big is that quote-unquote sub-industry or, or area of, of our industry? Yeah, you got a you got a few issues when you're talking about long volatility. One being the history that you alluded to is you really can't go back long much longer than 10 years with any of these managers, for example. And quite frankly, if anybody tries to provide a back test on volatility, especially the VIX space or, or VIX futures beyond the last 10 years, it's hard to believe those strategies because they weren't really traded in size till about 2010, 2011, 2012, when you had a lot of VIX ETPs coming into the marketplace that were trading those VIX futures. So you the volatility surfaces are constantly changing due to the different um, players in the marketplace. So it's really hard to think beyond the last decade with any sort of volatility manager, whether that be long volatility manager trading options, or it's other managers just trading the, the VIX futures. And so that's part of the difficulty with adding a long volatility strategy to any portfolio, is you don't have a long historical track record. And even I even think about the CTAs, which are much longer track record, but there's not a lot that have been around since the 1970s. There's not a lot of people left that have traded in or stagflationary environment. So this makes it difficult when you're actually constructing a portfolio to use any sort of historical precedence. When we think about the VIX space as well, or, or the volatility space, we actually look at it in three different buckets as well. And we think about there's just managers that trade options, which you could trade you know, straddles on the S&P 500 and try to gamma scalp that position daily to offset some of the theta bleed. Or you could trade opportunistic strangles on the S&P 500, just going a little bit farther out of the money. But when you're doing that, you're just buying options. And the best part about buying options is you can't blow up. It's just, it's like Nancy Davis called debit card investing. It's death by a thousand paper cuts. You know what your premium is, but you don't know what uh, your return is going to be in any sort of sell-off. That's an that's the most interesting bucket we always believe is just buying options because like that that blow up risk is mitigated. The other ways to look at volatility are you have we call VIX arbitrage or volatility arbitrage, which is more of that pairs trade between VIX and S&P. VIX and S&P are going to be negatively correlated most of the time. So you can have a sort of pairs trade that would be similar to like long Coke, short Pepsi. 
Due to the inverse nature, you're going to be like, say, long, long S&P, long VIX, or short S&P and VIX. And, or, so that's the intermarket spread. You could also do what's called a calendar spread, where you could be shorter along the front month VIX and shorter along the back month VIX. And you're trying to ratio those out where you're fairly market neutral, but you could still remain long volatility. The other one we look at, taking a little bit you know, outside look at the space, is we also view intraday trend following on the VIX and the S&P or other market indices around the world. We also view that as a, it is part of our long volatility space and our long volatility mandate as well. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the term crisis alpha, and rightly, Katie coined the phrase, and, and it's been fantastic. I was initially a big fan of it. I thought, yeah, finally, we got something we can hold on to and in, investors can visualize what this is. There's a crisis and here comes the alpha, right? But I've, I've realized that it's not so easy because the definition of crisis is very different. Nowadays, everything seems to be a crisis, right? And, and as you rightly alluded to, for the CTA world, we really need a, a kind of a longer term period of uh, uncertainty and instability to really do well. Does crisis alpha help you because you've, you obviously cover many types of quote-unquote crisis alpha. How do you think about the term in terms of how investors would perceive it? Yeah, I think crisis alpha is actually the best one of the best monikers for both long volatility and tail risk, especially when you combine yeah. the two. And to what your reference is, the way you know we think about the world in two buckets of, like I said, short volatility and long volatility. But then we also think about the world in three correlations. You have your long equity beta is correlated. You have uncorrelated is your CTA trend. And then you have structurally negative correlated with like your tail risk and your long volatility. Like you said, sometimes if, if the market is moving too quickly or whipsaws, that's part of the uncorrelated nature of CTA. You can't guarantee that crisis alpha. But when you have structurally negatively correlated things like just buying put options, you can almost guarantee that crisis alpha. So that's the way we look at the world is through those three primary buckets of correlation. That's what most asset classes are going to fall into. And part of CTAs being uncorrelated is sometimes they may move with the equity beta. And that's hard for people to wrap their heads around what uncorrelated and structurally negatively correlated look like. But the way we also look at it is for CTA to kick in, especially longer term managers, like we said, you need that 2008-like scenario where you have much more, maybe a longer, more protracted recession. But a lot of times to get there, it requires a violent sell-off. So this is where we look at this interim piece of long volatility and tail risk is to provide that convex return when you have a violent sell-off that then you can redistribute either to your equity beta or to your CTA trend managers. And that's what's really helping the portfolio over the long term. What I always worried about is exactly what happened in March 2020. Is like, what if we are in a, a certain trending environment in both the equity side and also the CTA side, and then you just have a liquidity event that's a sharp sell-off that's going against the trend. And so that's what was always in the back of my mind, keeping me up at night. And that's why I really felt you needed to add this long volatility and terrorist piece for those liquidity events that come out of nowhere. So that way you can monitor those, protect your portfolio, sleep at night. And then you had such a convex return that you now have a higher nab point for your overall portfolio that then you can redistribute to those other managers. And from there, if we have a K-shaped recovery, the, the equity or, or V-shaped recovery, the equities will do well. Or if we have that protracted uh, recession or, or we start really trending again, then your CTAs are going to do exceedingly well. But you've topped them up right at the most opportune time, which is the most important piece. Yeah. Now, I know from uh, personal experience that the narrative, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. The narrative around trend following, trying to get investors interested in what we do, 
when you don't really have a great story and it's all rules-based and very mechanical, that's a challenge. I find the volatility space incredibly complex. So I'm just curious to hear some war stories. What are the main challenges that you guys face when trying to get people to embrace this? Or have you found some kind of magic formula where you say, yeah, we don't actually need to go into the nitty-gritty of things, but if we can just get them to understand this and nod to that and say, yeah, that's right, then that's most of the hard work done. Yeah, there's multi-steps to that process, and you nailed it. It's, part of it is historically, I've been building these total portfolios or holistic portfolios for the better part of the last decade. And the piece that was always missing for the retail investor was this long volatility and tail risk. And so that's what my partner, Taylor Pearson, and I spent the better part of the last five years trying to come up with is like, how do we provide retail access to long volatility and tear risk where they previously had no access to these sorts of strategies that can really protect their portfolios and, and manage their wealth over the long term. And so part of that we knew was going to be a massive educational curve because these long volatility mm -hmm. strategies are very difficult. To me, it's the last bastion of active management, right? A lot of these other asset classes, those long GDP asset classes, you could just hit the buy button on an app and it's so easy to buy those. But these long volatility strategies and, and tail risk are very difficult because the volatility surfaces are constantly undulating. It's hard to find a cheap convexity in that search for cheap convexity. And you need a team of quants and a team of managers to really manage each of those positions and those different path dependencies. So this is why we view the ensemble approach to these as the most important piece because of those different path dependencies. And we want to make sure we capture that sell-off when it happens. But what you're saying is part of that education curve is dealing with retail clients. We knew it was going to be a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat of educating those clients. But what we also knew is we couldn't convince somebody sui generis that they needed tail risk protection. We needed somebody that has read a Nassim Taleb book or a Chris Cole white paper, somebody that's actively searching for that ballast of their portfolio, then we can bring them in-house, educate them on the different strategies we use, the ensemble approach we use, why we do what we do. And then it, it's a much easier sell because they're already like-minded. You, I, I think it's impossible, as I'm sure you've tried to convince people to use CTAs that have never heard of CTAs. It, it's an impossibility. You can't really lead a horse to water, but if you're at the same drinking hole, then you could say, hey, look over here, this might be a little bit better spot. So that's part of the, the education curve that's really difficult for us. The other part is we just, by, by constantly searching, tracking all of these different managers in our space, we just accidentally ended up at being experts on the long volatile risk space. We never really meant to be, but it's just there's not a lot of people tracking this space. And, and part of it, I think that you referenced earlier, is even an aggregate, especially people that are training the VIX, you're talking maybe a few billion dollars in aggregate is the capacity constraint. And so it's a very niche space and it takes a lot of education to really not only train our clients, but ourselves as well to really understand exactly what these managers are doing. So I'm going to go a little bit off my own kind of a script here, because when you talk about it, it kind of reminds me of something that I think is interesting, or at least I think it's interesting. And, and it may actually be quite uh, something that you guys have also thought about. When I started in this industry uh, a few decades ago, volatility was something we used to measure things, right? We were measuring managers, asset classes, whatever, through volatility or through its volatility, right? But nowadays, volatility is a key component in many of the algorithms that we run. How do you think about that? Does that pose, and everybody's doing it, by the way, right? So does that pose a challenge, a risk? How do you think about that change from going from just being something we use to measure things to now something that kind of is 
one of the key components into our risk models. Yeah, it's gone from a risk metric to a player on the field, right? You have this reciprocity or feedback of volatility used to be a way we just, it was just a simple risk metric on a sharp ratio. And now if everybody's targeting volatility, especially at the portfolio level, now we're going to get these uh, feedback loops that are, that really change the space. And so that's, we actually view that as a benefit, the long volatility. So if, if you have risk parity models or vol targeting models, or even as you've seen in your industry, it's amazing to me how we've had compression in volatility, right? Where everybody's trying to run a low, a low vol strategy. And part of that is maybe moving away from commodities and more into the financial markets on the CTA side. As you know, it's an AUM grab, right? As people have targeted volatility, lowered volatility to specific targets at the portfolio level, trying to improve sharp ratios, then to me, it compresses or subdues volatility until you have a breakout. So you can never really get volatility out of your strategy or out of the markets. And a lot of people are convincing themselves that they have a low volatility strategy and they can actually target it until you squeeze that balloon and volatility pops up in other areas. And then it surprises people. And it's always fascinating to me is like, how do you, and this may be a better question for you, is like, how do you target volatility at the portfolio level? People say the target's like 10%. And then you look at their back test and you take different slices of timeframes. And sometimes it's 7%, sometimes it's 15%. And so I'm like, how are you targeting volatility when you don't have a static volatility that you can actually target? That's a topic that we talk a lot about on the podcast. And I think most of us are against the idea of volatility targeting per se. And I think if you look at most CTAs or trend followers track record, you'll see definitely that there is a big difference in our volatility over time. But I do think you can target risk, but that's not the same as volatility. You can have some kind of idea of how risk, how much risk you want to take in your portfolio and you can adjust for that, but you can't control volatility. And I think your answer is pretty interesting and, and, and very insightful that actually that this might actually be a, a benefit for some of the strategies you employ, because when volatility then explodes, then everybody is running for the quote unquote exit at the same time. So that's interesting. Now, you mentioned another word, which two words, actually, that I, I may not, I think maybe people need to understand that a little bit better. And that's path dependencies, because I think most people are used to thinking about sharp ratio as the measure of risk adjusted returns. I think it's an incredibly dangerous ratio to look at because it's not path dependent, meaning you can have three different investments and their equity curves, and they all look completely different, but they have the same sharp. Can you unpack that a little bit so that people kind of understand what you mean by, by it and, and the importance of understanding what it means? And maybe also what you use you mentioned the MAR ratio, but what you use in, in if you don't use the sharp or don't put a lot of weight into it, are there other things that you think are, are better in describing the true risk of a strategy? Yeah, a couple of things I want to touch on. One, let me start back with what you said about volatility too. I absolutely agree with the way you know you guys look at volatility is you can position sizing is your best risk mitigation metric. And so when you put on that position size, obviously you're going to position size accordingly to what's going on in the volatility of the current environment, which I think is fantastic. The other thing has happened, what we saw clearly in March 2020, is when you have vol targeting strategies and you have this endogenous liquidity event, or some people call a VAR event, quite frankly, sure. is people are degrossing or deleveraging their portfolios all at the same time. And they're all running for those exits, which is then spiking volatility conversely. And so that's why a March 2020 event is great for us, 
Because as you have all these vol targeting type strategies that now are degrossing or deleveraging their book all at the same time, and they're selling off any asset class they can, where normally even like gold would provide a ballast, they it doesn't matter. They're just going to cash. So they have to sell it even though they don't want to. And so these are great environments for us. So that's why we're saying it's like you almost have these long periods now in risk on environments of very low volatility punctuated by extreme volatility. And that's the markets we moved into in a way, especially with what people call central bank suppression or whatever the markets were doing. A lot of people say it's, it's vol selling strategies. Whatever's happening is reducing volatility maybe during a risk on cycle, but that suppression leads to, to these violent sell-offs or violent spikes in volatility. When we talk about path dependencies, you just never know what a sell-off is going to look like a priori. Right? You don't know if it's going to be a, a violent deep sell-off, it's going to be shallow sell-off, is it going to take one week, is it going to take 10 months? We really don't know. And that's why we try to find managers that cover a lot of different path dependencies and we overlay them into an ensemble approach. As far as risk metrics, I think this is the most difficult and nebulous and, and untalked about part of all of our industries is the sharp ratio is, as you point out, it's essentially nonsense, right? And I think CTAs have done a great job of trying to point that out over the last several decades. So the question is, what do you use? Do you use a Sortino ratio that doesn't hurt your upside volatility? Do you use skew metrics? Do you use MAR ratio like we use for a return divided by drawdown? MAR ratio is a very crude metric, and it only really works in high sight. Like I say, my life goal is over the next five decades to run a MAR ratio close to one. Like that would be the hero's journey as far as I'm concerned. But I would never know that until you know, five decades from sure. now, right? So it's impossible to know. The way we look at it is in general and portfolio construction is having different return drivers that, that do well in different macroeconomic environments and trying to pair those up accordingly. And then if you add long volatility and tail risk, you're almost truncating kind of the left tail of that portfolio. So it's not really focusing on the portfolio volatility or any individual asset class's volatility because that can like lead you to illogical conclusions. And so the way we also think about portfolio construction is we actually call it stability through volatility, right? If we have actually these volatile asset classes, but they're truly uncorrelated return drivers and we rebalance those frequently, that actually could create a much more stable portfolio especially on the return to drawdown metric versus the return to variance metric of the sharp ratio. Just a question again that just comes to mind when you talk about that. For example, in the CTA space, we all think we're a little bit different, yet we always, and, and, and we are actually, but mm -hmm. we always end up with more or less the same correlation to our benchmarks. What about the volatility space? How different are managers when you look at their correlation, yet you, all con you consider them as being long vol type strategy? How different are they? So you just hit on the other, my other pain point of our education curve is one, what risk metrics do you use? There's no good risk metrics for long volatility tail okay. risk. The second one is what do you benchmark against? And there's no good right. benchmarks for long volatility tail risk. You have like the Eureka Hedge and CBOE indexes, but those things are fraught with survivorship bias and they're not great metrics to really benchmark against. And the space is constantly changing. So it's, you don't have a good benchmark. People will say, what about the VIX index? The VIX is just a number. It's not tradable. And it gives people false conclusions, VIX spikes or declines, sure. right? And so you just don't have good risk metrics. And so what do you do? So when we look at about our ensemble approach, we look at what the nice part about our long volatility strategies, and I said they're capacity constrained, they're very niche environment, but even within that niche, 
each manager has a very niche strategy they trade. And so we think about the different wrinkles of the way they trade and we overlap and overlay those wrinkles. So when we go out, we're looking to cover as many path dependencies as possible, but we're also looking for managers that trade slightly different strategies or to have different monetization heuristics than our other managers. What's been nice, like we we try to use these correlations as and as we're talking about correlations are terrible as well. If you use a classical piercing correlation, it's just a time window analysis that can give you false conclusions. But over risk on cycles, our our managers are fairly uncorrelated. And then when the sell-off happens, our managers are extremely correlated and and then the correlations go to negative one to the S&P. And that's exactly what we're looking for because to try to, during a a risk-on environment, to try to have people hold long volatility or tail risk in their portfolio, during an entire risk-on cycle, we're trying to achieve a flat to slightly positive carry, just so people behaviorally will hold this strategy. And to do so, you need managers that trade very different strategies. So hopefully you can capture little pops in volatility here and there. Like if we had the, the Volmageddon in you know February of 2018, we had some managers that were up double digits in that month. So you want to capture that and redistribute it across the year ensemble. And so we're always looking for managers that have a little bit different wrinkle, a very specific niche that they trade. And then we can, as I like to say, we play the orchestra, not the instruments. And so therefore, I can really place those in different parts of our portfolio that'll capture that path dependency, but also provide that hopefully slightly uncorrelated nature to the rest of our managers, which also helps us with a little bit of a rebalancing premium over that risk on cycle while we're still holding all that convexity for a risk off event. Yeah. And you know, the solution to your problems about benchmarking and and metrics and all that, you should do like Chris Cole has just done, create your own. Why not? (laughs) Warp. What's interesting about his CWARP metric is it's a Cole's wins above replacement portfolio, and it's taken from Moneyball. And the idea is basically, if I add this manager to my portfolio, does it improve my risk metric? So if I'm if I'm starting off with my base portfolio being 60/40, if I add long volatility, tail risk, or CTA, does this improve the risk metrics of my portfolio? All of us have been doing this for decades, right? Like when we talk to clients, we're like, "Give me your portfolio." You put, you know, done into that portfolio, it improves the risk metrics. Same with us. If you take long volatility tail risk, you put it with almost any portfolio, especially things that are long GDP or implicitly short volatility, it's going to improve the risk metrics. So that's, yeah, it, it's more because that's the biggest part. What you're referencing with Chris Cole's work and and what you and I both do is like, you if you're looking at your portfolio holistically and what does the team look like, and that's part of CWARP is the wins of profit replacement portfolio as a team. This is what you have to think about when you're looking to compound wealth efficiently or effectively over the long term. When you look at assets in in individual ways, you can be really, really distorted when you add them up together. And that's the problem with Sharp Ratio. It's actually Sharp was originally built as a portfolio tool to measure the portfolio level. But now we measure individual strategies or individual managers with Sharp. And that was never the intention. No, and that's a very important point. And that's only really now coming into the narrative about that issue, even though we, we should all have been talking about that for a while. But let's stay with this then and say, okay, imagine that you've decided to incorporate long volatility strategies in your portfolio. How do you think about position sizing the exposure to to long vol? Yeah, the way historically, I think that Mart Spitznagel at Universal has done a great job of, of talking about his, the classical tail risk hedge. And what's nice about a ta- classical tail risk hedge, if, if you're just buying, let's say, deep by the money puts with like a negative 20% attachment point where you're trying to truncate that left tail, 
it's not going to cost you a ton of money. In any environment, it can be anywhere from, let's say, negative 2% to negative 6% bleed, depending on what environment you're in on an annualized basis. But what's nice about tail risk is the cash efficiency of it. So what Spitzenegel has talked about is if he holds, let's say, 97% long S&P, and he can allocate 3% a year to tail risk, that over the long run is going to provide a much better compounded return over multiple business cycles because not only it allows you to hold more equity risk and sleep at night then when that when that uh, liquidity event happens you monetize those puts you rebalance back into your equity at a lower nav point and that allows you to compound wealth more effectively so that's a way of looking at classical tail risk now if we add in these long volatility managers that are trading much more opportunistically and we're trying to be absolute return over a, a business cycle or even during a risk on cycle, you're going to have to allocate a little bit more. And so we look at it more as like a 60-40 portfolio. Like this is the new 60-40. Historically, bonds provided this negative correlation that had a positive carry that was much like almost like buying put options, right? It was like it was a positive carry put option, which you know shouldn't really exist in markets. But we've been in this anomalous market of the last 40 years where bonds provide that ballast for you. Now, will they provide it going forward? None of us know. But over 100 plus years, the stocks and bonds have been much more correlated than they've been negatively correlated. So bonds may no longer provide that ballast you're looking for. So if you pair your equity beta, 60% equity beta with like a 40% long volatility tail risk and you get that negative correlation and you rebalance frequently, that's how you compound wealth more efficiently or effectively over the long term. What's actually fascinating though, especially sitting in your seat, I think that's always interested me over the last few decades is that you actually want those long GDP or implicit short volatility or as we said, those convergent mean reverting trades it actually should be 40% of your portfolio. And those divergent trades should be 60% because of the huge left tails that you have in mean reverting strategies. And because the, your, your divergent strategies are going to have small losses and large right tails of gains. So actually the proper construction is 40% short volatility, 60% long volatility. But everybody's gotten so used to the 60-40 going the other way of stocks and bonds. It's really hard to convince people that's the proper portfolio allocation. The other way where I go a little bit far out on a limb as an entrepreneur is I like to talk about your holistic life risks, right? And especially like Meb Faber's done a great job of talking about this. If you're a financial advisor, you're quadruple levered to the S&P 500. All of your strategies are long S&P 500. Therefore, your business is long S&P 500. Your job, if you're not managing that portfolio, you're just an employee there, is long S&P 500. And then usually your individual savings long S&P 500. So you actually are quadruple levered uh, long equity beta. So you really need a long volatility or tail risk hedge. So the way I look at it as an entrepreneur in general is that all of my businesses are going to be structurally long GDP, right? I want there to be an awash of liquidity in the markets. I want the good times rolling. I want real estate prices climbing. Every part of my life is essentially long GDP. So if I have any savings left over that I can't put back into my business, that all of those savings should go into a long volatility or terrorist piece. So if a market sells off and the rest of my life takes a hit, I have this convex cash position that then I can use to either make payroll buy up my competitors for pennies on the dollar or buy up opportunistic real estate investments for pennies on the dollar. But that's a little bit, maybe a bridge too far for a lot of people to think about their holistic life risks. I want to stay on the word holistic for sure, but just coming back to this 60-40, I mean, I couldn't agree more, but in our world, we're still stuck at fighting around the 5% level. <laughs> it becomes a problem, right? I, I just hope to get to the 40 level at some point for these type of strategies, but it is interesting. 
what I've always found actually quite surprising is that, and I know that MIP talks about this as well, evidence-based investing, right? And where you actually can present people with a lot of evidence, and I'm, we're going to talk about this in, in shortly, but it's almost like people don't really believe it, right? It's if for some whatever reason, it's just not good enough to, to, to give them all this evidence. Anyways, we'll we'll see how, how that goes. But I do want to talk about maybe as we sort of transition a little bit more to the holistic uh, approach and some of the new things you're doing, have you guys found certain common mistakes that people make when they think about... Because portfolio construction, I always think of people spending a lot of trying, time picking the best underlying investment they can find, right? They spend a lot of time think, picking the best manager, etc., etc. And it goes back to this whole Moneyball thesis, right? That actually what you need to do is to you need to look at the whole portfolio and so on and so forth. But are there some common things that you find that people do in terms of mistakes they make in order not to get to the point where they actually need to be? And that is, how is this investment going to help me overall and not, oh, look at that guy, he's done 15% uh, no drawdowns, right? Yeah, I think that Danny Kahneman, for example, and Amos Tversky brought it all to the forefront that we have a lot of these behavioral biases. And I have the same yeah. as everybody else. I'm, I'm fraught with behavioral biases as well. And so I think we all are return chasers, right? We want the best portfolio and we can't help but chase returns or, or be disgusted by drawdowns. I think it's just, it, it's part of our natural evolution. What's fascinating, you brought it up before, I think that Eric Crittenden has done a good job of like taking off the labels yeah. of these different strategies, right? How much would you allocate, yeah. right? And the proper allocation to like CTA, an uncorrelated strategy is like 40 to 60% if you're holding 60, 40. But as you alluded to, like who's willing to do that? And so it's like, that's the real question is how do you fight for the including these strategies? So everybody makes those mistakes. And so if I know if I'm prone to those mistakes as well, it's like, how do I behaviorally make sure I don't do those mistakes, right? And so part of proper diversification is you're always going to have part of your portfolio that's losing money. And if you don't have proper diversification, and it's not only you're going to have part of your portfolio that's losing money, you're also going to have the news is going to be telling you're an idiot to hold part of that portfolio as well. Like right now, if you told somebody get bonds as part of my portfolio, people are like, they're at the zero bound. This is the worst investment of all time. You'd be an idiot to hold them. It's also what I love about CTAs because who else would have rode that trend? Like who would have rode sure. the trend negative yeah. in oil? Who would have been long bonds through you know the zero bound? It's only CTAs. That's the brilliance, I think, of, of what you guys do. Is like, And I think that's also the difficulty. And I think Jerry's spoken this as well. Is like, how do you, when the news and even all your personal intuition is telling you not to take the trade, but you have to have the discipline to take that trade, right? And that's what's fascinating to me always about CTAs. So when we think about portfolio construction, I think it's really difficult. I, and not only for what we found actually, is what's interesting is the same biases that, that you see at retail level, you see at the institutional level as well. Mm. And so there's no like smart money, dumb money. Everybody is riddled with bias because even at the institutional level, it's still human beings and individuals. And it's, it's, you see a lot of performance chasing there as well. So when I originally think about portfolio construction, my, my framework I use is the Harry Brown permanent portfolio. You have the four quadrant model. Everything's on the axis of growth or inflation, right? You're either in growth or recession or you're inflation or deflation, right? And Harry covered that with his four quadrant model of just equal weight each to, to stocks, bonds, gold, and cash. And those are your kind of global macro quadrants. And that's the way you should think about portfolio construction. And I think there's a lot of modern nuances now that you can add to it. But that really at the at the end of the day is, is the way to think about 
wealth for the long term. And I think that's really difficult for people to do. But I think part of why that difficulty exists is because people have convinced that their savings are investments. That's part of the problem with our industry, or at least on the advisor side, is like whatever your savings are left over after consumption, those are your investments. And you need your investments to grow and maybe put them in a stock market or 60-40 portfolio. But no, these are savings. And you need those savings to be there when you need them most, either when you know maybe unfortunate circumstances hit you or retirement. You need those savings to be there. And you just need those savings to outpace inflation. If you start chasing investment returns with those savings, that's what leads you down a path of, of performance chasing. And so maybe that's part of it too, is just the different words we use to describe how you should structure a portfolio. That leads us to make a lot of these behavioral biased mistakes. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, actually. And we'll talk a little bit more about permanent portfolios and how you are thinking about it nowadays. But before we do, I'm going back, not because I want to suggest to people that the most important thing is to find the right manager, but since we don't have that many people on on the podcast that actually selects managers, but you do, mm -hmm. even though it might be within a certain area so far, I'm just curious in general, and I think this might benefit a lot of our listeners when you think about manager selection, right, just spend a few minutes talking about how you think about that. What are some of the challenges that you find with finding managers? Of course, you can talk about it, whether it's CTAs or whether it's vol managers or whatever you, but there must be some things you maybe do differently compared to other people when they select managers. And, and maybe if you have like an example of a question that you really like the manager to be able to answer well, to give you the confidence that either they've thought about things or they have skin in the game or whatever it might be. Yeah, confidence. Wow, that's a tough one. I'll start from maybe top down. Like we said, we, we think about the world as short volatility, long volatility. Then yeah. we think about the world in those three correlation classes of either a long beta, uncorrelated, and negatively correlated. So we kind of, we start structuring top down that way. And then we start thinking of asset class buckets of whether it's long volatility or commodity trend managers, then we get into those buckets. Then when we dive down in, into each of those asset class buckets. Then we start thinking about, okay, we have this ensemble approach. What kind of path dependencies do we need to fulfill? How do we diversify across these managers? So then we start looking for different diversified managers within each of those sleeves that we're looking for. And part of the way we've done this is we've done a joint venture with RCM Alternatives out of Chicago. And they're probably one of the primary platforms for alternative investment managers. So that really helps us source these managers. And, and we track dozens of them over time. The other thing, like I alluded to earlier, is like we like to look for that wrinkle of diversification or that niche that they all are all are part of to try to diversify even across that ensemble approach within an asset class sleeve. But then it, I may leave you wanting for my answer on this question. Now, I was just going to say because what what I'm trying to get at because I think this is what a lot of people uh, find difficult, right? Especially, and of course, I'm incredibly biased and, and and narrow in my thinking because when I talk to investors, usually we're up against the same usual suspects, right? The peer group of trend followers who've been around for 20, 30, 40 years is pretty small nowadays, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm curious to get into the minds of someone who selects managers, even if you don't day-to-day -day look at just trend followers. I'm aware of that. But I'm curious as to if you were presented with five or 10 trend followers, let's just keep it simple like that. What are some of the things that you think of would be important to you to make that choice? Because actually, I think it's a really hard choice because to the outside world, we look very similar to some extent. But I don't, and of course, none of us are, are we are transparent, but we can't give our rules away. And even if we did, 
what are they going to do with that, right? They don't know if a 40-day moving average is better than a 100-day breakout system. You don't know. So there must be something else that investors are looking for in order to say, yeah, I want to go with a Jerry or I want to go with a Don or whatever it might be. So I was just curious whether you had some golden nuggets you could share to help me and my CTA colleagues to understand the mind of an allocator. Sure. I'll give you, that's, that's a great way to start. I'll give you a, a very specific example. So if we're looking at trend following managers, one way I'm going to start looking at them from the asset class leave is I'm going to look for short, medium, and long-term lookbacks, right? And mm-hmm. so that's why I'm going to start diversifying into those. Then within those, I'm going to look at, okay, what is their, what are their trading heuristics, right? Are they using classic Donkian? Are they using moving average crossovers? Or are they using different breakout strategies? And what are their monetization heuristics? So then I can start differentiating within the short, medium, and long-term, what are their different strategies? And I'm looking for that diversification. And I may be different because, right, I'm, we're building ensemble approaches and we're looking at lots of managers, I'm not trying to pick the best manager because I don't believe that exists. And so part of that is, so now I'm, I'm, I'm narrowing down to f- try to find the ones that are doing slightly different things. And so I want to put them into an ensemble approach. So part of that too is, and you're going to get some extreme honesty here, is even if you guys have a multi-decade track record, that does not mean that next year you guys are going to perform, right? And you know this Absolutely. as well as everybody else, right? Yeah. And what's even crazier is, are your largest largest drawdown is always ahead of you, right? And no matter what your risk metrics are, no matter how many decades you've been in business, your largest deck, your largest drawdown is always ahead of you. It's just the way that the markets work and, and volatility in the arrow of time, your drawdown is going to be ahead of you most likely. And so these are the things we keep in the back of our head. And then the other piece to it is, okay, if I cannot guarantee that future performance is going to look like past performance, even though it says that on all our disclaimers, nobody really takes that seriously. And so... I can know, okay, these are your heuristics for taking trades, sizing trades, what kind of breakouts you use, what kind of strategy you use for monetization. I can look at all of those so I can know at least you're sticking to your strategy. Then what it always comes down to for me at the end of the day is position sizing. Mm. That's my best form of due diligence and my best risk metric. So the same way when you're taking trades as you're looking at a trailing ATR and you're trying to position size that individual trade accordingly, I'm looking, like I said, I'm playing the orchestra, not the instruments. I'm position sizing you guys accordingly because there's two reasons why. One is, like we said, we don't know if you're going to you perform the way you have in the past. So that's part of it. And then the second part is I never put it past people to come up with creative ways to create like a Madoff-like scenario, right? So what we can do is the best due diligence I have at the end of the day is position sizing and getting an SMA, a separately managed account, so I can see those trades in real time. And so those are the only two key pieces I have. Now, there's a whole other world of due diligence that we all go through, but that's like checking all the boxes, making sure there's no fraud in the past, like all of those sorts of things. If a manager is still in business, all of those things are going to line up. And then as you alluded to, they're going to do similar strategies. They're going to have long track records. They're going to have an amazing pedigree. They're going to have gone to the best universities. All of these things are all check boxes that if somebody's been in business for decades, they're all going to look relatively similar. So I think about it as the way I can really mitigate my risk, because I'm actually not performance chasing. I'm not looking for the best manager. I'm trying to mitigate my risk through an ensemble approach. So the best piece of due diligence I have at the end of the day is that position sizing and that managed account look through. But that may be very different than a way another allocator looks at allocating to you guys. I like that. I think that's very insightful, but I also think it must be challenging because how do you get the historical position sizing from managers? Are they just going to open their books and say, yeah, here's the last, the trades from the last 10 years that I've done? That's hard, I imagine, especially if it's a larger manager potentially. 
So I understand once you get your account up and running, you have full transparency. Right. But I, I imagine also that that is a difficult type of due diligence. I think it's very important. And so I, I, I applaud you for doing it. But I imagine that it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. It's a perversion of our industry, right? It's like, I can pick your guys' brain as much as I can, right? To try to get you to open yeah. the kimono. But you're never going to really tell me the secret sauce. But as soon as I get an SMA, I get to see the secret sauce in real time. And I can yeah. reverse engineer 90% of it. So it's like making the decision prior to, but then once you open the kimono with that managed sure. account, then we get an idea. And then the biggest part of it and why I believe in ensembles, as you all know all too well, even with managers trading similar strategies and maybe even similar lookbacks, we still have a large dispersion in the trend following space. Mm. So that's the other sure. point of actually taking an ensemble approach is I want to reduce that signal to the noise ratio. And so the other thing that may upset managers sometimes is I actually don't necessarily believe in alpha, right? Because alpha is a, a time window analysis, right? Over a decade, two decades, somebody might be able to provide alpha, but then it may, it, they maybe have negative alpha over the next decade or two. Like it, it's impossible to know a priori. So if I can create an ensemble approach, I want to get the beta return signal from that asset class. So if I'm looking to allocate to commodity trend advisors or, or trend following, is that's the other reason to take the ensemble approach by reducing that dispersion or signal to noise ratio and everybody within that subset trying to produce alpha, I can take a beta return signal from that as actual asset class bucket or that asset sleeve. Yeah, cool. All right, let's move on. Let's shift gear for a bit and, and move on to kind of one of the new things that you guys are doing. You've kind of already alluded to a little bit. And I don't know if, if you got the inspiration. I certainly was very inspired by the paper that Chris wrote about the Dragon portfolio and what if you had to choose a portfolio that to last you 100 years. I think that's incredibly interesting. And of course, it helps a lot when you can create some narrative around these things. So maybe we just start from the beginning, how you think about this. I know you touched upon it already, but but I have it listed here in my little outline that now we're getting into that phase. From my point of view, if I understand Chris correctly and you guys correctly, and I hope I do because I think it's incredibly important. My concern today, and I've voiced it a few times on the podcast, and that is that I think a lot of investors are, have built portfolios that more or less only designed for quote-unquote, the environment we've seen in the last 20 years, deflationary type environment. And I think what you guys are doing is thinking of what about building a portfolio that can cope with different types of macro environments. You already touched upon in terms of growth, decline, inflation, deflation environments. So why don't we start there and then you talk, talk us through what you guys have done and I'll intersect with a few questions, I'm sure. But I find this fascinating, and I think a lot of investors really need to pay attention to this kind of portfolio strategies that are coming out. And by the way, going back to your point about the trend following mixed with stocks and what Eric Crittenden and his team are doing, which I think is actually a really good way of trying to get people to get much more exposure to trend, it's almost, if you can't beat them, then blend them. And I think this is also a, a segue into what you guys are doing. So let's start. Yeah, I, lately I've been calling a, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It's like we try to hide the long volatility and commodity trend within a 60-40 portfolio so then people will actually hold it. And that's part of that. We talked about the educational curve earlier. How do you get people to sure. buy in? Chris Cole's Dragon Portfolio is a fantastic paper. We're obviously, uh, we're big fans of Artemis and Chris Cole. We actually allocate to them in our long volatility strategy. So we've all been good friends for years. But 
My partner and I, we've been building these total portfolio solutions for the better part of a decade. And what always, even though I know how to trade options and, and volatility in the VIX instruments, is there was never a solution for retail investors. And we had a lot of family and friends coming to us and like said, I've read an Asim Taleb book or Chris Cole White paper, how do I do this? And if you don't have tens of millions of dollars, there was never a solution. And so as entrepreneurs, we figure out there had to be a solution to this. And the piece that was missing was this long volatility tail risk piece. And so we set out to create that opportunity for retail to get access to this asset class. The problem is with the regulations and the business side of this space, it takes years to get these things off the ground. We started to work on and launch the long volatility tail risk piece in 2018, knowing that was going to be the hardest piece to build. And then once we had that piece, the second hardest piece to build was going to be like commodity trend. And so... Then we knew we'd build that piece, and then it's easier to overlay the stocks, bonds, in gold and Bitcoin, et cetera. And we've been working on it for years. So when Chris's paper came out in, in, in Q1 of 2020, it was great. But we're also like, we've been working on this behind the scenes. But it also, sure. it, it, but it's a rising tide lifts all boats. And so we take, yeah. a, we take a little bit of a different approach. Chris's Dragon portfolio has basically almost equal weight to five asset classes with stocks, bonds, gold, trend following, and long volatility, right? Ours is yeah. a little bit different because, like I said, I've always been inspired by Harry Brown. We take a, the four-quadrant model, and so we use global stocks, global bonds, and then Harry Brown used gold. But instead of gold providing that really ballasted in inflationary time, we wanted to use CTA or trend-following or commodity trend in that bucket. Mm -hmm. And then for instead of cash, we use our long volatility and tail risk. So that's the four-quadrant model that we use. So you have global stocks for growth. You have your global bonds for deflation. You have commodity trend for inflation, and you have long volatility and tail risk for that recession or, or you know, sell-off environment. And so we believe in an ensemble approach, as I've been talking about, to each of those buckets. So that's how we created this liquid portfolio. And we use futures and options, the cash-settled futures and options markets, because then we're allowed to cross-margin these different asset classes and structure a portfolio that could provide a nice return to drawdown mix for our clients. Now, historically, we're trying, we called ours the cockroach portfolio, because we're trying to outlast and outlive everybody, right? We think about multi-generational wealth first, right? How do we get this portfolio to outlive you and hopefully outlive your grandkids? Because part of it is we're entrepreneurs. Most of our clients are entrepreneurs, 25 to 40, that have had their first liquidity event. And to be an entrepreneur, you take very concentrated risk to actually build wealth and build savings. But then to maintain that wealth and savings, you almost have to turn 180 and use diversification to manage that wealth over multiple generations. So this is what we're trying to do for our clients. So this is the liquid portfolio we built, but that's not necessarily what kills multi-generational wealth. It's not necessarily that, that investment vehicle you're using, but it's things like war, confiscation, et cetera, that can really kill multi-generational wealth. So we have the liquid portfolio, and then underlying that, we're able to hold uh, segregated gold and a little bit of Bitcoin as well to manage some of that fiat risk. So if we have some sort of extreme exogenous event, war, confiscation, diaspora, et cetera, we also want to underlying that portfolio, we hold a little bit of segregated gold and Bitcoin to hedge some of that fiat risk combined with that liquid portfolio. So that's the where the lens we view of how do you manage that wealth that you've concentrated to build? How do you diversify it properly to manage any sort of macroeconomic environment moving forward for multiple generations? If we try and get people to visualize it, I imagine that kind of 50% is off offensive strategies and 50% defensive to stay in the football or soccer world uh, that you come from. I think that's always been a great analogy when you think about how to put together a portfolio. I think it's uh, Diego that yeah. talks about a football team and uh, how you put players on the pitch. 
and all of that good stuff. And I actually think that is for a lot of people an easy way to understand that each player has a role and you can't have 12 players like Michael Jordan on the field because that's not going to help. Which is also another Chris Cole paper, by the way, when he makes the, the analogy to basketball and how they put together teams. So you talked about, I imagine in the in the in kind of the offensive part is a lot of what we've already talked about: the long vol, the tail risk, the CTA trend, and then you have your gold and, and maybe your Bitcoin. In the offensive part, so I maybe I said offensive yeah. before I meant the yeah. defensive part. In the offensive part, yeah, in the offensive part. Is it just buying kind of the the underlying, I mean, or do you go into kind of some small illiquid stuff, private equity? I mean, how broadly do you want to diversify that part, so to speak? There's a couple of ways to think about this. And and part of, uh, as you know, when you're structuring portfolios or creating strategies, is there's a lot of regulatory burden. And then you have things like AUM burdens, et cetera, your assets under management. So initially, the offensive part of the portfolio, we use a, a combination of global stocks and global bonds, which you can get access to with the with the liquid futures markets. So that's what we start with. Over time, as assets under management grow, then we can add more strategies that are highly correlated with equities or bond markets. So then we can start to create much more of an ensemble within those buckets for diversification, but still sticking to highly correlated strategies within those buckets. If you were to add private equity, venture capital, real estate, you could one could argue they fall right into that equity sleeve. So that's one way of looking at it, but they're going to be illiquid strategies. So we built this liquid portfolio. So one could easily maybe allocate 50% of their wealth to this liquid cockroach portfolio and then hold aside 50% for these private right. illiquid investments. And that's it's a really key piece of understanding that's fascinating is that people don't realize is that the liquidity premium is almost just as important as volatility in our space, right? Is like you have liquid and illiquid strategies and most people are in highly illiquid strategies, especially they moved out the risk curve to private equity and real estate and venture capital is they don't have the liquidity that these cash settled liquid markets provide. And more importantly, in a sell-off, they're illiquid, you can't get your money out, but you also may be getting capital calls because now that manager feels it's a target-rich environment. So you need liquid, you need to provide the liquidity for those capital calls. So that's a it's a nice ballast actually if you can provide a liquid cockroach portfolio and pair that with an illiquid private equity real estate venture capital portfolio, you have a, a source of liquidity when you need it most. And that's an, an interesting way to really manage wealth as well is we wanted to build that liquid strategy first and then clients can pair that with their illiquid strategies that may require much more um, nuanced approach to how they invest in those strategies. Yeah, no absolutely. Actually, it's funny. I think actually you allocate to someone I, I used to work with when I worked for Jerry back in the 90s, Tom. I'll call him Tom. Then you probably know who yeah. I'm talking about. And Tom used to say back then, coming from the pension fund system, he always said, what people don't really understand is that when you invest in a, a trend-following strategy, for example, it allows you to own equities. And I think that's an interesting thing that I think people don't really fully understand. It's partly the liquidity side, but it's obviously also the the way that the performance tends to to uh, behave when there is a crisis. But I do think it's, uh, it's a nice uh, phrase. Now, talk to me a little bit about something which we also touch on usually in our weekly conversations. And that is, of course, okay, so you've decided you want to do this, but how the hell do you go and put together a backtest of something where you want to you want to build it for the next 100 years, but most, if not all of the asset class, and you want to do it in different environments, but the environment we've had 
has lasted for quite a long time. And some of the environments we're trying to protect ourselves, we haven't seen, certainly not in my investment career, and I think in many other people's career. So how do you think about getting to a point where you could say, yeah, I think this is a good, this gives me confidence in how these strategies will behave as the environments change over time? Yeah, that's extremely difficult. And I'm almost with Jerry on this where I don't trust a backtest. But we all use backtests right. to give us a, an intuition pump, as the philosopher Daniel Dennett tried to call yeah. it. So we have to get an idea. So you can backtest hundreds. We go all the way back to the Talmud for like diversified portfolios or or Jacob Fugger in, in what's now modern day Germany in the late 1400s is you want different asset class return drivers for diversification. And you can do rough backtests on things like stocks, bonds, gold, cash with that permanent portfolio going back 100, 200 years. But once again, we have much more financialized markets these days. We even we backtest our portfolio going back to the 1990s. But like you have to use different proxies for these over time. And so it's never really accurate. And also like Chris Cole backtested the Dragon portfolio 100 years, but you have to use very vanilla strategies and make a lot of assumptions to be able to backtest that. And so you can't really hang your hat on a lot of these backtests, but it gives you an idea to think about how these re different return drivers or these different asset classes perform differently over time. We talked about it earlier. It's like, I can't find anybody that's really traded stagflation. Those guys are long right. retired. It's hard to find anybody in those strategies. And then we talked about with long volatility strategies, you can't really backtest beyond 10 years. And so it, it makes sure. it really difficult to run that backtest. So you have to use proxies. And like I said, it, it leads to intuition pumps. But what you do think about is in just in general terms, how do these return drivers perform in different macro environments? And I think that was really the genius of Harry Brown. Now, we can use modern techniques to really diversify and create ensemble approaches within those and use active managers that are trying to seek alpha, but we're trying to use get a beta signal from them. But that is really the difficulty with backtesting, that you use an intuition pump, you throw it out the window. So it's a weird, like, uh, strong opinions loosely held is maybe the way to look at it. The other way, like you talked about Diego, actually, you, you'd appreciate this. I argued with Diego when he was talking about the football or soccer pitch and the different players on the pitch. You have offense and defense is what he's primarily talking about. And I said, your center midfielders are actually your, your commodity trend. It goes back to that diversification, right? Those are your uncorrelated. They can go offense and defense. And so that's how you really build that portfolio is thinking about offense, defense, the transitions from that. And then this is why also we think about like segregated gold or Bitcoin. It's like, what happens if like the, the stadium blows up? You need something outside of that system, like whether the market's shut down, et cetera. So that's the other thing we try to even think much more tail risk events of like, what if the, you know, the market's completely shut down? What, what are my options? And everything outside of zombie apocalypse is try, what we try to cover. And we hope by doing that, we're really just trying to build the least shitty portfolio. Right? I'm not trying to be the best portfolio in the world, but I'm trying to have the least shitty portfolio that can chug along in any environment we're in. And what's interesting is if you backtest like the 1990s, it's much more important to tranche it out into five-year periods to see how the portfolio performs over different five-year periods. And if you have proper diversification, it should chug along nicely. It may not be the absolute best, but it's never going to be the worst. It's going to be in that you know top decile the quadrant of returns over you know individual five-year periods. And that's exactly what you're looking for. As I said, these are your savings. They're not investments. They're your savings that you need them to be there when you need them most. And part of that is you cannot sustain massive drawdowns because you have individual sequencing risk. That's part of the the lie that we've all been that's been perpetuated is like just hold you know buy and hold stocks for the long run and you'll be just fine and that's the ensemble of average of that but we're actually leading individual lives and you never know when you're going to need that money most so you want a very boring portfolio that's going to chug along in any macroeconomic environment and no absolutely 
I'm mindful of uh, the time. And so I just got a couple of other things, small things that I wanted to ask you about. And then you, if you have anything you want to bring up, feel free to do so. So just for me to understand fully the cockroach approach. So gold and Bitcoin, you say in a segregated, but is it an overlay or is it part of the kind of the assets you hold? That's a great question. So I'm glad you brought this up. So the problem with a a cockroach portfolio we have, or when people really love the Chris Cole's Dragon portfolio, what they found out is it's really hard to implement. And part of that difficulty is it's really hard for retail investors to hold these different asset classes and cross-margin them. People these days talk about they're trying to target... The Part of the idea of targeting portfolio volatility is a fancy way of saying leverage, right? Because everybody's afraid to use the word leverage because they think people are going to freak out if they say leverage. What we do is, like I said, we have, we have the global stocks, global bonds, long volatility, and commodity trend. We're able to hold those. This is why we use the futures and options market, those cash sell futures and option markets, because at the FCM, we're able to cross margin them. So it requires, it's a very capital efficient way to hold these. And we leverage that portfolio 2x. And so that's, so now, so if if previously it was 25% each stocks and bonds, now it's 50% each. So now we're back to a 50 50 portfolio. So this is what I was saying about now you're holding that stock bond allocation like people normally are, but now you're also holding an equal amount of long volatility, tail risk, and and commodity trend. So that helps balance that portfolio. So you're looking at 50% each of those quadrants as we hold that at the FCM cross margin. And then what you're able to do as well is if you're using these, futures and options markets, is you can actually hold segregated gold as part of your collateral. Mm. We use very low margins for trading futures and options. So part of that margin usage, instead of having cash or T-bills, you can hold segregated gold. And your certificate for that segregated gold counts as 90% collateral. So it's just another capital efficient way of having the gold on the books as well. So in in our portfolio, we use 20% segregated gold and rebalance that over time as well. But that allows you to, in a capital efficient way, to have that gold on your books. But no more importantly, you're having a segregated gold position that's no other nobody else's liability. There's no counterparty risk there. And then we add, you know, 20% gold and the the Bitcoin position is 5%. You have a lot of issues there about how you're going to hold your Bitcoin due to different regulatory environments, whether it's domestically in the US or Europe, et cetera. So you can start off with just holding it with the future, the liquid futures markets. Eventually you can use cold storage, multi-sig wallets. It's just, we're waiting for kind of the regulators to catch up to the environment we're in. I have a feeling they're catching up pretty soon, pretty quick, given the last week's kind of announcements coming out from left, right and center. But maybe that's a different story. The product itself, when people want to invest, how can you package? How have you packaged it or are you packaging it at the moment, so to speak, to make it easy for people to buy and and put in their portfolios? What's possible nowadays? Right. And so that was the one of the biggest hurdles that, that Taylor and I had to figure out over the last several years is what investment vehicle could we provide so we could offer retail clients access to this. And so technically, we're a commodity pool operation. We're a CPO. And so part of that CPO process is we're allowed to take unlimited accredited investors. Now, we did everything we could to figure out a way for non-accredited investors, but it's just... It's just impossible. And so this is the structure we figured out is we can take unlimited accredited investors. And so even other, you know, managers in our space are going to be QEP or QP minimum. And so that's even a higher hurdle rate. But we we kept it down to accredited investors. And part of that accredited investors is that we have $100,000 US minimums. And so this is how we tried to really democratize this investing style 
to get it as low as we could to provide that access point to retail. Mm. And that's exceedingly difficult to do. It took us years to figure this out. And so this is what we came up with is you just, if we have accredited investors, $100,000 US minimums, they can, that's a direct access into this cockroach portfolio that can holistically and is a total portfolio solution for their savings. So they can just hold that for the long term and their savings will hopefully be there when they need them most. Yeah. And will it be for US investors or also for uh, offshore? Investors. That's an interesting question, as you had to deal with as well, right? Is so technically a CPO is a Delaware LLC, and so direct you could take direct investment from anywhere in the world, right? But who's comfortable with okay. that, right? Like so, South American yeah. and Asian investors pretty comfortable with that. European investors, UK investors, not so much, right? So you can also set up a, a Cayman feeder, which we're working on as well, and, and so you have all these other. Okay avenues or vehicles and it really depends on each individual client and and where they're located and how comfortable they are with a direct investment in into like a Delaware LLC. The other thing we were able to do on domestically for US investors is that they can invest in us through a self-directed IRA. And so that's just another tax efficient vehicle for them to have access to. Now unfortunately it's not set up for like Canadian investors to do it with their with their retirement accounts. So we're always working on all of those hurdles. But there's any investor anywhere in the world can have a direct investment. If then they require some sort of vehicle in between, we're working on that as well. But as you know, that's like you get those calls from a different country every day. It's just sure. a friend of ours said they, they would love to see what portfolio manager does on a daily basis. And I'm like, do they want to see me in compliance and legal meetings all day? Because this is what our world looks like, True. right? Yeah, no, it's definitely not so easy. And it's also, I mean, just timing, just getting people to say yes at the same time so that you can actually go and do these things. It's a little bit of a puzzle, but it keeps us busy, which is good. This has been great, Jason. I really appreciate that. I think that one question that I, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this as well, because this portfolio sounds pretty bulletproof in many ways, right? It really does. And so I commend you for that. But is there anything at all that you guys have thought about? Say, yeah, this could go wrong if, is it just, okay, if exchanges close, closes, nobody can trade, neither can we. That that I can, that I understand, but then we're all in the same bucket. But is there anything else that you thought about that, that or do you really feel that this is pretty bulletproof? No, you, you said it best. One is the obvious that known is that like if markets close down, right? And that's this is also why we have the segregated gold for those sorts of scenarios or like sure. a true zombie apocalypse, right? As my partner likes to say, you need guns, butter and water. But outside that, you ask sure. the right person because I think as long volatility people, we have a very quirky personality. So we really think about crazy tail risks. And actually, this one's not so crazy. But the way what really keeps me up at night is there's two things that I worry about. One, as you said, we're looking at a, at a back test. At most, I can back test the last 100 years. People don't realize the last 100 years is an anomaly. Since the true advent of the Industrial Revolution, we went from a billion right. people in the workforce to 5 billion. So we had a 5x increase in the workforce, right? And in 2071, where they expect us to achieve peak population, so the workforce may only increase 50% since then. So we went from this exponential increase in the workforce to now a linear one. So what does that mean for our economic models? Fairly uncertain, right? And another piece to that is you have the dematerialization effects of the worlds we live in where we're collapsing supply chains. Where previously I would have to go into like a high-end boutique to buy like say a cashmere sweater. Now I can go online and find somebody in Mongolia that can make that cashmere sweater and send it to me directly. So in the store, it may have cost me $600 and I had all these middlemen and supply chains in between. Now I could buy that same sweater for $150 and it gets direct shipped to me. I still buy the sweater. So consumption continues apace, but we have a decline in prices. 
And we don't have a lot of economic models that make up for that. The third piece to that is I think about the new EM or the new emerging market is actually the emerging metaverse. It's not on a countrywide basis. It's that we're all moving online into this emerging metaverse that we've had maybe sped up by the crypto environments or VR, et cetera. And that's another dematerializing effect. So if we're having a reduction in the workforce population, dematerializing effects, I'm not sure we have any economic models in the textbook that speak to that. Now, I'm hoping by holding all the world's asset classes and rebalancing frequently that we should be just fine in that environment, but it's impossible to know that a priori. I think that's a good point. And actually, it can be a little bit scary to uh, even speculate about some of the things that could happen and and how the world is changing at the moment. And narrative, of course, is very important. I was, I was listening to someone, and I forget who it was, but I thought it was quite funny. He talked about this thing about the cloud. We always think about, oh, yeah, we'll just put it in the cloud. But what he said, what it really is, it's a bunker in Utah, <laughs> right? But had they used that word, right? Had they said, oh, we'll put it in a bunker in, a, in Utah, it wouldn't have sold very well, right? So it's interesting. Anyways, that's a digression. Yeah. If you said, yeah, I, I put it in uh, a dozen cheap server farms in, in distributed locations around the world. It doesn't have a great marketing pitch as it always does. And and the no. way I also think about it is the way we construct portfolios with our cockroach portfolio is we're trying to get out of the crystal ball game, right? Everybody believes they could predict the future. I don't think anybody can. And this is why I actually always love CTAs. It's like, I have a theory that when people are coming up in the financial markets, when they're in their teenage years, they're either inspired by Warren Buffett or they're inspired by market wizards, right? And the Warren Buffett idea is sure. like, you can predict the future. You can pick stocks. You're a genius. The market wizards, the CTA side is nobody knows anything. I can't predict the future. No narrative is going to help me. I have the epistemic humility to just take the trade. And I've always been more akin to that side of the book. And because that's the epistemic humility it takes to hold a lot of different asset classes and say, I can't predict the future. Nobody can. But if I do this right, I'll be just fine. And that is why you're a good friend of the show, of course, <laughs> with, that, with that attitude. Before we wrap up, Jason, where do you want to send people? to learn more about what you guys uh, are doing? Sure. Easiest way to find us at mutinyfund.com. You can also find all our podcasts there on our website and all of the papers that my partner Taylor Pearson writes. We have a Mutiny Investing podcast that you can find on any podcast player. On Twitter, I'm at Jason Mutiny and my partner's at Taylor Pearson Me. Fantastic. Excellent. On that note, let's wrap up this fascinating conversation. Jason, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights uh, with us. It's been fascinating to hear your views on volatility and portfolio constructions and all of that. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. Send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in the world of finance and investing. From me, Nils Kasselblasen, thanks for listening. I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find on our website. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.